Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. In the name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The contemplation of an endless eternity is not an easy task for us in our strictly time-bound world. But it must be said that James Joyce, perhaps of all people, in a portrait of the artist as a young man, does offer some help. When, in a famous passage, he wrote, Now imagine a mountain of sand, multiplied as often as there are leaves in the forest, drops of water in the mighty ocean, feathers on birds, scales on fish, hairs on animals, atoms in the vast expanse of air. And imagine that at the end of every million years, a little bird came to that mountain and carried away in its beak a tiny grain of that sand. Yet, at the end of that immense stretch of time, not even one instant of eternity could have been said to have ended. Even then, at the end of such a period, after that eon of time, the mere thought of which makes our brain reel dizzily, eternity would scarcely have begun. And why, you might ask, does this offer, and why does he offer us such helpful imagery? Well, it comes in the story within his novel of the three-day retreat at the Jesuit school there, Belvedere College in Dublin in which the main feature of the retreat is a set of four sermons, I think you have only one today, on the last things delivered by Father Arnal, very much in the style of meditations based on St. Ignatius Loyola's spiritual exercises. And so it is that having helped us imagine what a sense of the endless might be, in the novel, the good father goes on to dwell rather lovingly on how next such an eternity spent in the torments of hell might be thought of too. Thus he explains helpfully, remember the fire of hell gives forth no light. As at the command of God, the fire of the Babylonian furnace endured by Daniel and his companions lost its heat, but not its light. So at the command of God, the fire of hell, while retaining the intensity of its heat, burns eternally in darkness. It is never-ending storm of darkness, dark flames, dark smoke of burning brimstone, amid which the bodies are heaped one upon another without even a glimpse of air. And on top of that, he goes on to outline the pain of intensity. We are invited to picture in our mind's eye a hell of endless duration featuring boundless extension of torment, incredible intensity of suffering, unceasing variety of torture. This is what the divine majesty so outraged by sinners demands. This is what the holiness of heaven slighted and set aside for the lustful and low pleasures of the corrupt flesh requires. Given all that psychological intensity and literal vividness of imagery, it's interesting, as an aside historically, that it was a common charge of Roman Catholic controversialists that Protestants had nothing like this to threaten. 
It was commonly suggested that we merely put up with but a wicked conscience. A claim readily shown, of course, to be false to the rhetoric of Protestants, as one can easily see when one looks at no less a figure of Jonathan Edwards in American Protestantism. His language is quite as colourful as he presents the nightmare vision of hell where he says, to help your conception, imagine yourself to be cast into a fiery oven, all of a glowing heat, this one has light, or into the midst of a glowing brick kiln, or of a great furnace, where your pain would be as much greater than that occasioned by accidentally touching a coal fire, as the heat is greater. Imagine also that your body were to lie there, full of fire, as full within and without, as a bright coal of fire, all the while full of quick sense. What horror would you feel at the entrance of such a furnace? But, he adds, your torment in hell will be immensely greater than even this illustration represents. So there is, as you see, ecumenical agreement on the pains of hell. But amidst all this horrifying imagery and the terror it is designed to evoke, is there not for us a sense of a different kind of disquiet, a theological one? For how is it that all this terror is to be reconciled with the message of hope, of love, that is at the heart of the Christian gospel? Does not all this stand in contradiction with God as the Father of love revealed in Christ? Does not all this panoply of horror suggest instead some coldly unloving deity who scrupulously balances the debit-credit moral account and punishes with implacable decisiveness? Does it not make us think at best of a God who at certain moments sets aside mercy and lets justice take its inexorable course? Instead, when we think of the infinite love and goodness of God and of his power to change the most hardened heart and of the inherent weakness and blindness of we, men and human beings, are we not inclined to wonder if such concepts as sin, especially that of mortal sin and an eternal penalty of punishment, just do not make sense? How does this cohere? And yet we do have to think too about the shadow side, so to speak, to Christ's parables, such as those of the net of good and bad fish, of the sheep and the goats, and his direction that it is better to cut off a hand or pluck out an eye than to end up with all one's faculties in hell, where the worm does not die nor the fire go out. Then again, there is the remark that the path to perdition is wide while the road to life is narrow and little travelled. So what then about this extraordinary and unique parable with which we are confronted in today's Gospel, of which many aspects should give us pause? Take for example the small detail. The characters are named. This is highly unusual. And of course among those names is the highly evocative one of Lazarus who appears also at another point in the Gospels, raised from the dead by Christ. While it is also striking that Lazarus never speaks in the New Testament, which given all that he has gone through by the end of it is perhaps a little disappointing. Secondly, 
The scale of this drama that we have today presented to us is quite vast. A scene of one world of torment divided by an impossible chasm from the world of the blessed. Even if that also is implied in some way to be part of a mysterious Hades. When it comes to interpretation, again, it would seem that the focus of moderns tends to be different from that of ancients, and we often are focusing upon the rich man and his feasting, and we introduce theoretical analyses whereby we are suggested, it is suggested we might want in the light of this to adopt the labor theory of value, dialectical materialism, and perhaps the class struggle. Yet all that would be about this world, which would be to neglect the large fact that the parable is very much a post-death metaphysical drama, which is surprising as there is so very little that we have to go on from the Bible directly as to the nature and practical realities of what life after death is like. Given that Christians have classically felt committed to some very large claims about life after death, that is interesting. And of course our largest claim is simply that there is a life after death. Then again, what is the moral and spiritual lesson to be drawn from the parable? The parable may seem to conform with the sentiments we heard from Timothy, who urged the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. But does that not amount to a version of works righteousness, whereby good deeds are, meant, are the means to secure a place in heaven, an idea in profound tension with the notions of salvation by faith and the bestowal of unmerited free grace upon the true believer, which is to be found elsewhere in the New Testament? Then again, does not the parable imply some very interesting things? First, some kind of immediate judgment upon death of one's life in this world, such that one ends up either in torment or the place of the blessed. While again, there is an implication that both these estates are themselves not final, but merely part of an interim estate, a Hades that exists somewhere and somehow in parallel to the world of our experience. Until then, secondly, there is the last judgment and the end of time, the parousia with the second coming of Christ, at which point the ultimate life of eternity begins. If, indeed, such a sequential mode of thought has application at all to what has classically been held to involve participation in the timeless world of the divine life itself, the beatific vision, with its simultaneous and entire possession of eternal life. All of which brings out the point that there is indeed a lot going on in this parable, not least being the seeming tension between doing the good in this life and what it is that saves, which is a matter of faith in Christ and not simply a matter of good deeds. While in addition, there is the matter of what can alienate us from God definitively, and is salvation something we can, as it were, be terrified into by being dangled over the fires of hell, as many a past preacher seems to have supposed? Uncomfortable as aspects of this must be, generations of preachers 
have indeed stretched the imagination to the utmost in describing the horrors in order to make of it the ultimate psychological deterrent, as it were, lest through our all-too-human weakness, the acrasia, as the Greeks would have called it, we neglect to do what we should in order to enjoy the equally boundless, infinite and endless pleasures of heaven, which is offered to us by contrast to the horrors of hell. And yet, as I say, there is real theological tension here. Perhaps it can be of help to ask if we are not edging towards a conceptual framing that ended up in one path identifying the theological concept which in some traditions is known as that of mortal sin, as distinct from the more disciplinary concept of grave sin. And I shall not even begin to get into the, the distinctions involved in venial. While historically many Protestants have found problematic the idea of mortal sin, there is a sense in which it should be understood as fundamentally about the real possibility open to each of us of final impenitence and rejection of God and his offer to salvation of salvation to us in Christ. Here one must bring together the concepts of the infinite love of God on the one hand, together with that granting to us of the full reality of freedom on the other. By contrast with mortal sin, there is what we might call grave sin, which may in some complex way stand in relation to another complex concept, which I've referred to as venal sin, which brings into focus here the church's discipline of confession and penitence, whereby through this recurring process the work of sanctification is advanced, as we constantly are brought to recognize our lapses and failures and come to be reconciled in church once more to God in Christ. Thus conceived, we each as sinners may through Christ and the church come to die to sin and live for God, even though in this world we remain sinners. We can, in short, be redeemed sinners, all of which is a way of looking towards the fullness of genuine and effective metanoia, which is to say conversion, to which we are called, in which God forgives sin and transforms the heart of each one of us, even though sinners we remain in this world. Hence, the notion of mortal sin, or better, mortal sinfulness, has a certain practical utility as giving expression to the real possibility of that spiritual state in which the sinner has come to reject God and make something other than God, in the end, the purpose of his life. More specifically, where one commits to such a way of life and dies in it, then Christian tradition does hold that we may be irretrievably bound to the consequences of that decision and act. And what that means is simply that wrong choices and error have real meaning. Hell is rightly to be seen as at its, simply, at its simplest merely life without God, and as such is not imposed by him vengefully as a punishment, rather it is the working out of the consequences of our potential rejection of the salvation made available to us in Christ, which God has offered. It is the logical continuation, the final phase of a choice which he has made available to us. God takes each of us and our decisions very seriously. 
Paradoxical as this may seem, it is necessary in order to do this that we be granted a degree of freedom and self-determination which none except God could provide. Circumstances of personality, situation, moral obtuseness, various mechanisms of rationalization, exculpation, all kinds of unconscious influences will affect the degree of guilt and there will be inequalities, but nonetheless we are all free to accept the offer made equally to all of us of salvation in Christ. All of which indicates what? Well, about the rich man, surely that he has erred, both in terms of his fundamental idolatry in allowing the things of this world to supplant the place of God, while he also forsook the works he would have been called to undertake if he had sought to embark on the path of sanctification made available by God too. In other words, good works can never save on their own, but they would have flowed from his not committing the mortal sin of turning from God, even if which particular sin or series of them came to mark what we might now call the tipping point in his life in one direction may only be susceptible of eschatological verification, as he himself discovered on the wrong side of that great divide. But as we think about the stark warning then contained in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man and their dra dramatic reversal of fortune upon death, we should perhaps recall too the incarnation, for through that we see Jesus weeping at the death of that other story involving Lazarus or a Lazarus in the New Testament. For this reminds us that in that moment was presented a God who was not far off, cold or indifferent, but a God in Christ who was compassionate, who feels deeply within the being of God our suffering, our horror and our sadness, as Jesus Christ clearly displayed. Hence we must remember, we see who God is when we see Jesus on the cross, in the Eucharist, in Holy Communion, when we break the bread, we break the body of Christ and we see the immense being with us of God, which is to say Emmanuel. Not just at good times as it were, but at the darkest, most terrible moments of life. And even when we ask how could this or that aspect of life be allowed to happen, that testimony of Christ is with us as it was to those at the time of the death of Lazarus that message that God still loves us and that he never turns from us. If we will but choose wisely and turn away from the false gods of this world and choose salvation in Christ and his path to sanctification and salvation in the life to come, in its fullness in heaven, as we all surely must pray, we will find it in us under God's grace to do. Amen.